wisdom and compassion are the two great wings of the Dharma. We really need both of these wings in this great flight of awakening that we're on. Without wisdom, we might have compassion for the suffering that exists in the world, but we won't have a good understanding of its causes. And so therefore, our actions may not be that effective. We may have wisdom and insight into the nature of things in the world, but if we don't have compassion, then there is no strong motivation to act, no strong motivation to do things, to engage in the world. So we need both. Wisdom and compassion balance each other. Tonight I'd like to talk about the compassion side, what it is, how it arises, and how we can manifest compassion in the world. What is it? What is that feeling? When we reflect back on our own experience, on those moments when we feel most compassionate, we can recognize that it is this very deep and strong feeling that wants to alleviate suffering, where we see it, where we find it. It arises, this feeling arises, when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, whether it's in ourselves or in other people. But this is a very difficult and profound practice And we may want to be compassionate, and maybe sometimes even feel that we are. But it's not actually easy to open to the pain and suffering that's in the world. It's not easy to do, just as we don't particularly like to be with our own pain. And how many of you coming into the hall really are equally open to pleasure and pain? doesn't matter. (laughs) It's a profound practice to get to that space where we really are open. And just as we don't like to be with our own pain, we don't necessarily like to be with the pain of others. It's hard to let it in. It's hard to be open. There are strong tendencies in the mind which keep us defended from feeling pain. They keep us indifferent or apathetic, disconnected. Just as an experiment, you know, keeping this in mind, watch to see what happens the next time you come close to a situation of suffering. Maybe it will be pain in the body, maybe it will be some emotional distress, Maybe when you go home, it will be images on the TV, news images of, you know, violence or starvation or epidemic diseases, something, you know, where where we get these very strong images of suffering. You know, we're walking down the streets of New York and we see people in tremendous suffering. Watch what the mind does in those moments. Do we feel uneasy? 
Do we pull back? Do we withdraw? Do we deny? Do we just avoid it, not look at it? Do we let it in? One of my favorite stories about the great power of denial was told by a friend of mine about his grandfather and his father riding in a car on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. So they're riding in the car and the newscaster breaks in with the announcement that the Japanese have just bombed Pearl Harbor, the beginning of World War II. And the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> World War II would be a hard one to keep out. <laughs> but it's like that first reaction. And we may laugh at that one, but we really all have the same pattern to varying degrees. You know, when we up again situations of suffering, there are many times when we are not open to it, when we try to avoid or deny, you know, or withdraw. In a wonderful poem called The Snowbelt, Beyond the Snowbelt, Mary Oliver She writes of a a storm, big winter storm, taking lives two counties north, not far far from where we live. And yet, and this is the quote from the, the poem, so she describes the storm and the taking of lives. Yet, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And it's really interesting. I, th- I found those lines really powerful because we do get so many reports you know, from the next county, from two counties north, countries across the sea. How can we stay open to the suffering that's there, given the magnitude of it? We are bombarded with so many reports of suffering. It's really like a catalog of human distress. Is it possible, is it even possible to stay open to all this? So I think this is the great question. Can we open with compassion to the suffering that exists in the world. Can we open to it within ourselves, without pity, without anger, without fear? This challenge is not a theoretical one. It's not a question of simply admiring love and compassion as an ideal, admiring it from afar and thinking, yes, that's a good idea. You know, and maybe someday I'll be more loving or more compassionate. Or even simply practicing it 
in the isolation and the solitude of a meditation retreat. Our practice is really about the transformation of our consciousness, about developing the wisdom which will allow us to open, which will open the wellsprings of compassion within us. There was an article in a Harvard Medical Journal journal in 1989. It's an article about a physician to the Dalai Lama at that time. His name was Dr. Tenzin Chodrick. He had been imprisoned in the 1950s by the Chinese was in prison for 21 years, and according to this article, for 17 of those 21 years, he said that he had been tortured both physically and psychologically every single day. And in this article, which is called Triumph of the Heart, he describes four points of understanding which enabled him not only to endure know that suffering because people do endure tremendous suffering in a variety of ways not simply to endure it but actually to come out of that experience with his heart intact free of anger free of hatred so clearly there was some very profound wisdom which he was bringing into play So there are these four points that he emphasized in this triumph of the heart. And the first one, his first insight was seeing that he needed to enlarge the context of what was going on. And he talked about it in terms of seeing that even in the most deplorable circumstances, the understanding that some human greatness can be accomplished. Well, that's, that's a major expansion of context. You know, in the midst of such intense suffering, it's asking that question in the midst of that, what human greatness, what greatness of heart can be accomplished in this situation of suffering? And Dalai Lama speaks of this often, where he says, and he says this repeatedly, you should value your enemy because your enemy teaches you patience. That's that same enlargement of context. So the challenge for us is to look at those times, even, even times of much less difficulty, where we're not being tortured for 17 years, can we remember this insight? Can we remember this lesson? Somewhat dis- someone disturbs us or irritates us or is annoying us. Do we stop to ask ourselves what human greatness, what greatness of heart can be accomplished in this situation? Or do we simply jump in with our reactivity of dislike and aversion and anger. and 
We need to apply this in our lives. It's not, it's not just theory. This is the wisdom that makes compassion possible. It's a practice. The second insight that he brought to bear in that circumstance, and he, this is all described in this article, second insight was the deep recognition of seeing the common humanity of himself and those who were tormenting him. He actually saw that the guards, you know, and the people who were so cruel, were actually in ad, as adverse a situation as he was. Because he understood that all beings you know, will experience the fruit of their own actions. And these people were creating for themselves an immensity of future suffering. But what's so remarkable, and this is, this is really the key point, in his understanding of the law of karma, you know, that actions bring results, he wasn't seeing it as a vehicle for revenge. He wasn't thinking, oh, they'll get theirs. He was seeing it as a vehicle for compassion. Well, that's quite remarkable. Seeing the commonality in the midst of dispute, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of suffering, really understanding that we are all in the same boat, that we are creating through our actions karmic fruits. that actually became a source of the great compassion of the Buddha to help us awaken. His third insight, first was enlarging the context of understanding, seeing the commonality of all beings. Third insight was remembering to be humble not to get caught in pride, in self-importance, or self-righteousness. It would be an amazing, in those circumstances, which are even hard to imagine at all, given how most of us live our lives, but to think in times of tremendous suffering, where some injustice is be some great injustice is being done. The challenge of not getting lost in righteousness. He said that he he ascribed this ability to let go of that actually is the key to his survival. You know, this feeling of of self-righteousness is so seductive, even in much less warranted circumstances. At one time, this this is my my early years in practice in India, I had gone up to the mountains during the summer months when it gets very hot in the plains. And I had this, I just rented this little cottage and it was, very primitive, but it had this fantastic view, you know, just overlooking the 
the high, the high Himalayas. And I was doing intensive practice, and after about a month of silent retreat up there, in a field just below my house, one day this group, it was like a group of paramilitary Girl Scouts. <laughs> they were called the Delhi Girls. They came up and set up camp. And that was fine, that really wasn't a problem, but they also set up these loudspeakers, and from like six in the morning till 10 or 11 at night, it was Hindi film music blaring on these loudspeakers. (laughs) It was amazing what my mind did. I mean, I was infuriated and enraged and self-righteous, and here I am, I've come to India to get enlightened in these, <laughs> making such a racket, and why aren't other people disturbed by this? And, it was, and I was writing letters in my mind to the mayor of Dalhousie, you know, <laughs> and really caught, you know, in these feelings of righteousness and anger. But there was nothing to do, you know, obviously... They weren't about to move because (laughs) I was unhappy. (laughs) It took weeks. I mean, I was sitting with this for weeks, you know, and just letting all of these feelings. And and finally, my mind just surrendered. You know, this was quite a long process. But at last, I had to let go. There was nothing to do. And it was amazing in the moment when I really let go of that feeling you know, of self-righteousness in the situation, when I could really let go of that, it was no problem. I was sitting, my, my meditation went on, there was just that noise, there was that noise in the background. My mind had really let go of any reactivity. And so it was a tremendous lesson in how we create suffering for ourselves, in holding on tightly you know, to this feeling, of, I'm right and they shouldn't be doing that. The last of his insights was the understanding that the Buddha highlighted so often in the teachings and one which we see uh, so vividly in our world today is the understanding that hatred never ceases by hatred. Now in one teaching of the Dhammapada, which you're probably familiar with, there's this famous verse, Hatred never ceases by hatred, it only ceases by love. You know, we look in the world today, in so many places of conflict that have been going on for as long as we can remember, almost. You know, the the conflicts in Northern Ireland, the conflicts with Israel and the Palestinians, and you just see the cycle of hatred and violence, creating more hatred and violence, creating more and more and more, and it seems... Where will that ever end? And the Buddha was pointing to this 2,500 years ago, and it's a pretty basic understanding in many spiritual traditions. Hatred only builds more hatred. So these are the reflections drawn out of a situation of immense suffering being the condition for his triumph of the heart. These are the reflections that we can bring into our own lives. 
in times of distress, in times of suffering. This is the practice of wisdom at those times, enlarging the context. What greatness of heart can, I, can, I, can be accomplished in this difficult situation? Seeing the commonality of us all. Remembering or settling back into a basic humility, not getting caught in that self-righteousness. And realizing that hatred will never cease by hatred. And compassion and wisdom are both present within us when we have the wisdom that allows us to be compassionate. When we have the understanding that allows us to open in situations of suffering. There is a certain magic and power that we bring to the world because it helps us see the situation beyond our usual conditioned response instead of that immediate reactivity and aversion or fear or denial. Instead of slipping into that habitual response, we start to see other possibilities. We're no longer caught in the conventional response to the situation, and that's the power and magic of it. We see whole different ways of relating to these difficult circumstances. Compassion directed by wisdom can take many forms. Now, sometimes it's very soft. It's very, the, the compassionate moment is soft, it's gentle. I'll share one story with you that Myoshin inspired. Uh, this is my little Zen story <laughs> with a Zen master, which is really about the possibility of just that moment of soft compassion. I'd done just, uh, just one or two, two uh, sessions with Sazaki Roshi back in the 70s. And he's a pretty fierce Zen master. He's really tough. And so it's a very high-pressured situation. And working on koans. And you see him four times a day, you have to go in and say your koan. And I wasn't very good at this. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't my form. <laughs> <laughs> so I would go in, he would give you know, some very simple koan, and I'd go in and I'd say something. You know, you, it's very formal. You go in, you bow, you say your koan. And I'd give my response, and he'd just ring his bell and say, oh, very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it. That's, that, was, that was the interview. <laughs> so I'd go out and feel really upset, and then go and I'd, bell rings again for interviews and I'd go in and I'd say something else and on a good day he would say good answer but not then (laughs) okay so this was going on for days and I'm getting more and more you know uptight with it all so then once I went in he saw I was really hopeless he gave me an easier koan (laughs) he said how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? And we had been doing chanting every day. So I understood 
what to do. But probably unbeknownst to him, although I'm not sure, it just touched something within me, which went back to my third grade singing teacher, who said, Goldstein just mouthed the words. (laughs) This was my... (laughs) And that message had been reinforced many times (laughs) by dear friends over the years. So, I mean, it just triggered every single fear and anxiety about having to, in this very high-pressured situation, having to go in and something resembling singing. (laughs) So I practice and practice and practice. I'm repeating, rehearsing this in my mind 10,000 times. Bell for interview rings, go up to see him, bow, do my koan. I start doing this chant. It was just hopeless. I mean, I got all the words wrong, the the whole melody was wrong. It was really awful. And I felt... (laughs) I can't tell you how I felt. (laughs) I mean, it just felt completely raw and open and exposed and humiliated and just all of that. And then something extraordinary happened. He looked at me as I'm going through all this and then feeling this. He just looked at me and just with the most compassion, he said, oh, very good. <laughs> you know, and it was an incredible moment. It really was because I had been so open and so vulnerable that those words actually just, it felt like they literally touched my heart. You know, just when he said, oh, very good. And it was just such a moment of compassion. You know, and this is like 20 years ago. It's still incredibly vivid in my mind. You know, that moment. That's the power. When somebody is really right there with our suffering. You know, and sometimes it's just a word or two that can touch us so deeply. Sometimes compassion is tough. It's not always soft and tender. Sometimes the compassionate response is really very forceful. There's a story from the Buddhist time of a monk who had been... i get this story straight. He had been the Buddha's charioteer while the Buddha was still a prince, before he had left home. And so they had had a friendship from childhood. And then the Buddha left home, the the prince left home, became the Buddha, awakened, the order of monks formed, and this charioteer, this former friend, became a monk as well. But he really played on his former friendship with the Buddha, and he was was not a very good monk. He wasn't following the rules, and he wasn't practicing, and he was just causing trouble. And this was going on for a long time, for year after year, and the Buddha tried admonishing him, and nothing was working. One of the last things the Buddha did before he died, he instructed the whole order of monks and nuns to have no communication with this monk, Chana, at all. No one was to speak to him. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, imagine, and this is the Buddha, he's about to die. And one of his last things is, don't speak to that guy. (laughs) 
Buddha, and then the Buddha died. But that that last instruction of the Buddha, one of the last ones, so awakened the feeling of remorse in Chana. That's what it took to get to him. He woke up, he practiced, and he actually became one of the enlightened monks. And I think it's a good story because it just reminds us compassion can take many forms. You know, it's not always this kind of soft and gentle, light touch, which is appropriate at times. Sometimes we really need to be forceful to help awaken somebody from patterns of ignorance that are causing harm either to themselves or others. For many of us, I think compassion may really be at the heart of what we aspire to. And I think that many of us really have this aspiration, can I live with a great compassion for myself, for others? I mean, the Buddha, as the expression of his enlightenment, he's often known in the writings as the great compassionate one, or the great physician, the healer. But really, a great care is needed as we explore this practice of compassion, as we explore the meanings and the nuances, because there are also pitfalls to avoid. There are dangers that are there in our practice of compassion. I think it's worth recognizing them. And we use the word compassion, it's such a, such a wonderful word because we just associated with it so many great qualities of openness and caring and connectedness. You know, so we'd be very hard put to really find fault with compassion. It contains so much that's good. But it is possible to sentimentalize and idealize these feelings. You know, we create some kind of ideal in our mind, a sentimental picture of compassion. And then we stay simply satisfied with that idea of it, that we're not really living it or embodying it because we've created some, some picture in our mind of what it is. And then rest in the picture rather than in the embodiment of it. Or another danger is that we might have a real feeling about compassion but then judge ourselves for not having enough of it. And so that becomes another pitfall or danger. Or on the other side, we might begin to take pride in our more compassionate moments, you know, where, we, where we really do something that's compassionate and kind and generous, and then, mm, <laughs> you know, I'm really a compassionate person. So all of these... We need to see it. I mean, these will happen. You know, these are like the, the near enemy or the far enemy. They're the, they're the shadow side of compassion. 
So we don't want to be seduced by the magnificence of the word and our idea of it. We really want to stay very grounded in its practice. In the cultivation or the practice of compassion, we need to start right here with ourselves or those right near to us. Not in some grandiose notion that, okay, I'm going to save the world. We want to start simply, start with that humility to the difficulties that are present, to the suffering that's present right here, right now. It might be our own physical or emotional pain. How are we holding that? Are we holding it with compassion or not? The practice is right here. It's not some big abstract thing. It might be how we're relating to the restlessness of the person sitting next to us. You know, here we're trying to concentrate and be focused, and maybe the person next to you is rustling around and making noise. How are we with that? We might be on a freeway someplace and, you know, stuck in traffic and some guy is, you know, heavy on the horn. What's our reaction to it? I mean, clearly, he or she is in a state of suffering. But what do we close off? Do we deny it? Do we avoid it? Do we judge it? Or can we drop underneath the behavior to relate to the suffering that's there? The practice of compassion is really the practice of letting things in. Can we let the suffering in? That's our practice. That's where the compassion will come from. The great lesson, and if you can remember this, it will save you untold distress in your meditative career. (laughs) So, and it's not complicated. It's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to it. That's the key to meditative practice. Because conditions and circumstances, both in meditation and in our lives, keep changing are largely out of our control. It's not what's happening that's important, it's how we, relate, how we are relating to it. And what's so inspiring and encouraging, you know, as we practice more, the more we learn to open to our own distress, our own pain, our own suffering, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, psychological, the more we learn to open to our own, the more insight and strength and courage we have in opening to the pain of others. So it's not unrelated. What we're doing here within ourselves is exactly creating the ground of openness that allows us to relate the suffering we see around us. That's why it's so, it's so 
ironic when people who are not familiar with the meditative journey, you know, they might look and see a lot of people sitting quietly, no eye contact, you know, apparently isolated from one another. Think, oh, this is a, this is kind of a selfish, self-absorbed thing. And what's so ironic is it's exactly the opposite. The more we can open in ourselves, that's the strength and courage we bring in opening to others. That is the wellspring of compassion in the world. Compassion begins with the feeling of empathy. Nyoshin spoke last night quite beautifully about it. You know, that feeling of empathy where we stop for a moment in the rush of our lives. We take a moment to actually stop and feel what's going on in ourselves, in other people. You know, we, you ask somebody, how are you? How often are we really interested? You know, or maybe we're interested on the run. What would it be like to take a moment and say, you know, how are you, and really be there for that person. That's what makes empathy possible. We're allowing ourselves, even if it's just for a moment or two, to actually feel what's going on. Or in situations when people are behaving badly, you know, even causing harm, do we ever stop and really feel the suffering that's underneath that behavior? Or are we just busy reacting to the behavior itself? This is the practice. This is the practice of quieting down, of opening up, of connecting with the suffering that's there, not defending, not avoiding, not being indifferent to it. But compassion is also something more than these moments of empathy. It's not just feeling what other people feel. Because compassion is that extra, that extra power that actually creates the motivation to act. And Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so, so well when he said, compassion is a verb. It's not just a feeling. It's that which motivates, motivates us to act. It's, it's really expressed in the question, how can I help in this situation? How can I help alleviate this situation of suffering? As the compassion grows within us, we begin to practice an active engagement with the suffering in the world. And it's in response to the varying needs of beings, you know, in whichever way feels appropriate. There are so many people who are open to suffering with compassion. Might be in very small, unregarded ways. They're just being kinder and more generous, more forgiving of the people close to us, the people right around us, friends, families. There can be these very small moments of compassion. It might be a gift to somebody who you find difficult. Just imagine taking your difficult person, leaving the retreat and giving them a gift. It's 
quite amazing what might happen. There's a situation when we were our first years of practice in India. This was in uh, the late 60s and early 70s. And at that time, meditation was, you know, complete unknown or not very well understood in this country. So we were there, and, you know, we were all quite young at that time. I had one friend who had been there in India with me for quite a while, and his mother, who, who was back here in the States, hated the fact that he was in India practicing meditation. And she would write these letters full of rage that he was there and saying, like, I'd rather see you in hell than be there. And so you can imagine being on retreat, <laughs> getting this letter from your mother. <laughs> it was pretty intense. You know, it was... So one day he went to tell uh, our teacher Deepama, you know, this woman I talked about, uh, totally wonderful being in Calcutta. And so he was describing to her you know, uh, the situation. So Deepama, and she was very poor. You know, she, she really had very little money. And she reached under her mattress, which was her bank, and took out 10 rupees, which was a lot of money for her. And she gave it to this friend. She said, buy your mother a gift. You know, it was just a really beautiful moment. He did. And he sent, he sent this gift home. And it was amazing. There was this unbelievable change of heart. You know, and all that anger and all that rage really was a call for connection. You know, and just that simple act of, of his doing that. And I won't bore you with the details of the rest of his life. <laughs> but he came home and, care, and cared for his mother as she got older and died. And it was just this amazingly close relationship. And it all, just in that moment you know, of compassionate response, so sometimes it's very little things. Sometimes compassion is manifest in very courageous and heroic ways. You know, there are many examples we see. Just think of people like Martin Luther King Jr. just as one example of many, but you know, I recently saw a documentary of you know, his life and seeing the, the footage of his leading marches, you know, in Chicago and Memphis and Birmingham and surrounded by this energy of violence and hatred. I mean, it was, it was really intense. And just maintaining that center of love and compassion, that's, that's I mean, it's tremendously heroic in its manifestation. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. We each have to find our own response to situations of suffering, it's depending on what's appropriate, what our own interests are, what our own talents are. We each have to find our own way. You know, and sometimes it might be taking a very active engagement in the world, really being on a front line someplace 
Sometimes it might be a change of attitude to the people closest to us. Sometimes it might be sitting alone in a cave in the Himalayas. That can be as compassionate an act as anything else. Pascal wrote some lines that I really love. He said, most of the problems in the world could be solved if people would learn to sit alone quietly in a room. So we're doing our part (laughs) to solve the problems in the world. We can practice this compassion from two sides. From one side, which is really emphasized a lot in the Pali texts, in the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, where the Buddha says and and emphasizes that by truly taking care of ourselves, we will take care of others. And we purify our own hearts and minds compassionate activity flows naturally out of that purification. It's like two people stuck in the mud. You know, one person needs to get some footing on firm ground in order to be able to help the other. They try to help each other before that, they just sink further in the mud. You know, we hear this every time we get on an airplane, we hear this principle where the the safety announcement comes on. In time of loss of cabin pressure, the oxygen mask will descend. Please put on your own mask and then assist those around you. You There's there's just a very basic wisdom in that. When we take care of ourselves, then we're able to take care of people around us. And if we try to get in there and be of great help before we're able to, often it just causes more confusion. So this is an approach from one side. The other approach is expressed very beautifully by the Indian saint Shantideva, who wrote a book called The Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shantideva and is really a a shining example of this way of practice. In this Bodhisattva's way of life, the emphasis is on putting others before oneself, of giving more importance to others than oneself. So it's a very different, very different approach. I'd like to read to you some verses from this book, which I find is enormously inspiring. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, 
May I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a bountiful treasure. My body, thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. This is an enormous aspiration. And it's possible to hear this or to read this and to become tremendously inspired. It's just of a potential that our lives be dedicated to the benefit and welfare of all beings. But we might also feel a little overwhelmed. I mean, it's pretty daunting you know, will, would we ever be able to live up to that, given where most of our minds reside? For me, the great lesson in hearing these teachings is not to create some grandiose vision you know, of how I'm going to save the world, but rather just to let that aspiration be like this very small seed that I plant in my heart. It's the aspiration even to have the aspiration. You know, so we, we're just very, we have a great humility with it you know, in seeing the, the magnificence of a life dedicated in this way, and we just very small seed. Thoreau wrote, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. Don't underestimate the power of a seed. So rather than solidifying and opposing these two views, as happens so often in sectarian divisiveness, you know, oh, we should dedicate ourselves to the welfare of others. No, we should take care of ourselves first and then help others. You know, and whole schools of Buddhism have grown up <laughs> kind of in conflict over this issue. They're really two sides of the same principle, and we need to kind of absorb both into my favorite new theme of one dharma. From one side, we, we need to do the work of purifying ourselves. That's essential. But we can do it with the motivation that it be for the benefit of all. So we don't ignore the necessary work that needs to be done. We do it, but we do it with that motivation. May this be for the benefit of all. And on the other side, we practice putting others before ourselves. We practice that aspiration to benefit all others. 
understanding that in doing that, we are also purifying ourselves. And so the two are part of the same process. They're not two different things. So we plant the seed, this wonderful seed of compassion. We plant the seed of the kind heart, and slowly it grows in us. and It can become the guiding principle in our lives. And even at those times when we're not acting from that place, and there will be many times like that, we're not acting from the kind place or the compassionate place. Still, it can be there as the reference point, reminding us of other choices, reminding us that there are other possibilities. This is our practice, nurturing that seed. There's one Tibetan teaching which sums all of this up beautifully, I think summing up the power of the practice of compassion, says, let those who desire Buddhahood not train in many dharmas, but only one. Which one? Great compassion. Those with great compassion possess all the Buddha's teachings as if they were in the palm of their hand. Sit for a couple of minutes. All beings everywhere live in safety. May all beings be free of mental suffering and physical suffering. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.